We are back in the book of Ruth. We're actually going to finish talking about Ruth this morning. And since we're talking about the very last chapter, this is a story of redeeming love, and we're going to see a happy ending at the very end of this book. And a happy ending to a story makes everything that came before it worth it. On the other hand, if you're reading a story that's very engaging, but it it kind of fails, it stumbles at the ending, it takes away something from that story. It doesn't quite sit well. Now, there is a time and a place for stories that are tragedies, and the Bible is full of life stories of people who started really well and then ended poorly. There's a role for stories like that, but at the end of the day, at least for me, nothing beats a happy ending. But I think the truly great happy endings are the ones that come unexpectedly. We think the story's going to end one way, but then all of a sudden it ends in a way that's different, that's better than we thought it was going to be. We thought we knew what was going to happen, but it ends in a way that, wow, that's amazing. I wouldn't have ended it that way, but that's so much better than the ending I came up with in my head. Those stories are truly memorable. Something I really enjoy are watching movies, and so I was thinking about some movies that really stood out to me like this. These are just ones I like. Maybe you don't like these movies. That's fine at all. And let me put a massive spoiler alert here, so I'll say the name of the movie, and if you don't want to hear how it ends, just stick your fingers in your ears and say la 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 for for a minute or two. If we're going to little older movies, I'm reminded of the movie uh, Casablanca from the 1940s, and in that movie, it seems like our main couple, Rick and Elsa, that they're going to run away together and be happy. But at the very end, Rick puts Elsa on a plane with her husband and says, no, you need to be with your husband because his work is important. That's the better than the ending, I thought. And that that was a really profound ending. Uh, Coming into more my lifetime, two movies that popped in my mind. One was the movie Spider-Man 2. I'm talking about the old school 2004, way back in that day. Some of these graduates now just started school at that time. Um, But in that movie... Spider-Man decides he's going to be a superhero. He saved the woman he loves, but he thinks he can't be with her because he has to go out and be Spider-Man. But instead, she comes to him and says, I know you think we can't be together, but can't you respect me enough to let me make my own decision? I know there'll be risk, but I want to face them with you. And so when it looked like he was going to make the choice to be without her and be a hero, she says, no, you can be a hero and be with me. That was better than I thought it was going to end it. And then a little bit more recently, I was thinking of a kid's movie, Toy Story 3. In all the Toy Story movies, it's about the toys get separated from their owner, Andy, and they somehow get back together. And that's how all the first movie goes. That's how the second movie goes. But in the third one, they're separated. They finally get back to their owner. But he's about to go off to college, and you think he's going to take some with him or put them in a safe place. But instead, he gives his toys to a little girl named Bonnie, who he knows will love and take care of them. And that's a much more mature response. Selfish John, who likes his toys and was growing up, was like, wow, I don't know if I'd do that, but that is a much more mature and a better happy ending than I thought of. Well, we're going to discover a happy ending like that in our passage today that's going to be better than we may expect it to end. This is a story of redeeming love, and it can give us hope when we think about dark and confusing times, such as what we live in now. And maybe hope isn't the most practical take-home lesson, but I think it's something that we could all use a little more of. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this passage. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had in the book of Ruth. I pray that as we look at this very last chapter, you will use this story of redeeming love and a happy ending to point us toward a future Redeemer and to give us hope to face every day we go through. 
I pray, God, that this story may lead us to see how great you are, to see your name, your fame increase, and to see your glory praised. So, God, may you be the focus of our time today. May you give us hope from your word because of the work of your Son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't been with us for this time, or if you'd like a little reminder, we're studying through the book of Ruth, and Ruth is a very dark time, the story set in a dark time in Israel's history. This is when the judges were ruling or were helping to run Israel. And that may sound like a good thing, but during this time, God's people all did what was right in their own eyes. If there was something they wanted, they did it. They didn't think about what God wanted. If we read the book that comes before this in our Bibles, the book of Judges, we'll read horrible things that people do and horrible stories. And our story, the book of Ruth, starts like that. It it starts in a way that makes sense for that type of time period. There's this family, a husband, Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons. They don't have any food in their home, so they journey to another country, Moab. And while they're there, the husband and the sons die. And this woman, Naomi, has lost her family. And she has to go back home with nothing except one daughter-in-law. One daughter-in-law of her sons stayed there. But another one, Ruth, who's now a widow like Naomi, she is loyal to her mother-in-law, showing faithful love and goes home with Naomi. When they get home to Bethlehem, Ruth goes to glean to gather food in a field. And she ends up in a field of a man named Boaz who shows compassion to her and shows her devoted love. Now, Naomi knows this man Boaz is someone who's a close relative, known as a redeemer. He can help their family, provide for them. And so Naomi concocts a plan to get Ruth and Boaz together. And she sends Ruth out into a field where Boaz is in the middle of the night and When they run into each other, this is what Ruth says. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. Protect our family, for you are a redeemer. And in this midnight moment of uncertainty and temptation, it becomes a hallmark of pure love. Boaz praises Ruth, but he points out there is a complication with this plan. As he says a couple verses later, it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. There's someone more closely related to your family. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down until morning. Boaz wants to marry Ruth. He respects this woman. He loves this woman, but he wants to do it in the right way, the pure way. And that brings us to chapter 4, the very last chapter of Ruth. And the first thing we see in this chapter is Boaz acts on his redeeming love, on his redeeming love. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of this passage. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along with whatever Bible you have, or the Scripture will also be up on the screen. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, my friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. In verse 7, now it was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech all that belonged to her sons, Chilion and Malon, and Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah, be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So here we're coming up with kind of the climax of the story, the redeeming love. This is a scene that has words that repeat to show us what's happening. It begins at the gate and it ends with Boaz talking about the gate of the city. There's also a transition. Last chapter was a private conversation at night between Ruth and Boaz. Now we're in public in the day where everyone can see. What I found interesting studying Ruth that I didn't know before we looked at this is how there's a key word in each chapter that we're supposed to focus on. If you remember when we talked back in chapter one, that key word was return. And because Naomi, Ruth were returning, they were coming back to the promised land. In chapter 2, that key word was glean. Ruth was going out to glean to gather the blessings that God had provided. In chapter 3, that key word was to know. We wanted to know how the story was going to end. What would happen? In this chapter, if you didn't hear it, I tried to emphasize the key word is redeem. There is redeeming, there is buying, there is saving going on in this chapter. It happens seven times in this chapter, along with several other times in the book. This scene takes place in Bethlehem at the gate, which was kind of like the town hall or courthouse. Today, we often build big courthouse buildings in the middle of our cities, but in those days, they put that business would happen in the gate, the entrance to the city, because people would leave the city to go out to the fields to work. Everybody passed by, so it was a common gathering place. In the gate, there would typically be a room where they'd gather if they had important business to take care of. It's where transactions were witnessed and disputes were settled. Boaz goes to this gate. He has to go up into the city, and when he gets there, he waits for this nearer kinsman, this guardian redeemer, this closer relative of Naomi's family to come by. We see a little bit of something there. Verse 1, Boaz goes to the gate, sat down, and then most translations have something, and behold, or just then, in God's providence, this man happened 
to come by, and Boaz has him sit down for business. He gathers elders in the town. They were the leading men who could witness business dealings, decide issues. And Boaz is interrupting the harvest. This is the most important time of the year. So a crowd gathers. Something special is happening here. There might be something else going on here by Boaz bringing these people to sit in the gate, and they all come. If you remember, we've also talked about how Ruth is called a virtuous woman, a phrase in Hebrew that is also excellent wife. In the Bible, you may remember that phrase from Proverbs chapter 31. It talks about an excellent wife, a virtuous woman. And in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Proverbs comes before Ruth. So we would have just read about it and then read this chapter. And there's an interesting verse there, not talking about the woman, but about her husband in Proverbs 31. It says her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Maybe we have another reference here that Ruth is a virtuous woman and Boaz is a worthy husband. Well, this conversation begins. Boaz tells the man that Naomi is selling or really reassigning the rights to use and own her husband's land. Boaz offers it first to this man because a kinsman, a close redeemer, is supposed to buy land that belongs to to the family, so that land doesn't change owners but stays within the family. The book of Leviticus describes this. Leviticus 25 says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, his nearest redeemer shall come redeem what his brother has sold. Here we see this in action. So Boaz will get some property out of this, but what he really wants to do is marry Ruth, but he holds that back for the moment. This man says, some land I can get. I'll take advantage of that. Yes, I will redeem it. So Boaz explains the other condition. Whoever gets the land must marry Ruth and must carry on the memory of Elimelech's family by having children with this woman. The man says in verse 6, the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. He's concerned. If he has a son with Ruth, then that son could share or take inheritance of his own children that he's either hasn't had or may have at the time. There may be a couple other things going on here. Boaz presents her as Ruth the Moabite. Is there some prejudice against Moabites here? He also says an interesting phrase, I cannot redeem it for myself. Is he only thinking about himself? Because if he was going to do this, he would have to take on an obligation to provide for Naomi and Ruth. And then if something happened to him or to his children, he would lose his land and his reputation in the city. He's concerned that although Elimelech's family is in danger of disappearing, his own family name might disappear. So he's thinking a lot about himself and his interest and things that are concerning to him. But on the other hand, we have Boaz here, and Boaz is not thinking about himself. He's willing to do anything for love. This is what true, sacrificial, redeeming love looks like. In the next verse, we're told, we're explained a custom to us. The people who read this verse must not have known what this custom was. The audience needs to learn. The man takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. Sandals were often a symbol of exchanging or legalizing a transaction. It's not quite the same thing, but there's a chapter in the Bible, Deuteronomy 25, that talks a little bit about this. The idea was if you take off your sandal to sell a piece of land, give it to somebody else, you're saying, I will not step on that land. You can step on that land. Here is my shoe for you to step on this land. What the other man is doing is he is renouncing, rejecting his claim to this property, and he's also rejecting his responsibility 
to Ruth and to Naomi. And remember, he's, he has some good reasons, at least in his head, for doing this. He's worried what will happen to his family and what will happen to his land. And he's also worried that his name, his family, will disappear. But what's funny about this is we don't have his name in the Bible. This man's name did disappear. By renouncing, rejecting this responsibility that he had, his name is gone from Scripture. He, the very thing he was afraid of has happened to him. This kind of contrast mirrors something we saw way back in chapter 1, where there was the widows of Naomi's sons, Ruth and Orpah. And Orpah turns away. She goes back to Moab and disappears from the Bible. But Ruth followed God. And here, this man, this redeemer, turns away from his responsibility, but Boaz steps up and follows God. With this business done, Boaz, in verses 9 and 10, makes a formal proclamation to these elders and everyone else. He says, I have redeemed, I have purchased Naomi's land, and I have bought her daughter-in-law to be my bride. He's making it public to the whole community. Everyone will know, now this couple is married, now this land is Boaz's. True to his word, he settled the matter that very day. Back in chapter 3, Naomi told Ruth to wait. She said in the very last verse, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so he did. Ruth was bought. She was redeemed to be Boaz's wife. And we've talked a little bit over the past couple weeks about what is happening here. This is obedience to the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6 says, If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, then the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And that's the very language that Boaz uses in our chapter. So this family's name does not disappear. He is marrying this widow. By marrying Ruth, Elimelech's family name would remain and endure. Elimelech and her husband Malon, their standing, their home, their land will be remembered. Now, from our 21st century perspective, we look at this, we're like, this isn't a very romantic story, Pastor John. I was talking about purchasing land and, and buying a wife, but Remember, this is coming after chapter 3. This couple has had an intimate conversation. They want to get married. This is the public testimony to their love. The last two verses of this section, the elders and the people of Bethlehem, they bless this new marriage. They pray for children. All the people who were at the gate, the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. They're talking about two women who were the wife of a man named Jacob, who was also known as Israel, and most of their sons made up the 12 tribes of Israel. So these elders and people are relying on, they're asking God to bless this new union because they know, in the words of Psalm 127, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This couple is getting married. They're trying to build this family, but God is the one who has to act. And so they encourage Boaz, may you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. They're encouraging him to act worthily. This is a word that was used to describe him in chapter 2, to describe Ruth in chapter 3. They're praying that he would prosper, the family would have standing and wealth in Bethlehem. 
and this renown would come through this marriage the famous king david his house would be built his family would grow and the city of bethlehem would be remembered forever as the home of david and eventually as the home the birthplace of jesus christ and this is fulfilling a promise of god psalm 89 you have said i have made a covenant with my chosen one i have sworn to david my servant I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then they reference another couple. They talk about Perez and and Tamar and Judah who had a son, Perez. This was not a good relationship, though, at the beginning. Judah had relations with his daughter-in-law, and that's where Perez came from. But this broken beginning then led to greatness to the tribe of Judah. The same thing, Naomi and her family have had death and suffering, but they're praying that it may turn into greatness for this family. This is a reminder to us that God loves to save, to redeem, to fix broken people. And we do the same when we reflect his character. Boaz sacrificed his reputation, his family land, possibly the future of his name for Ruth, the woman he loved, and to honor God's word. He was willing to do anything the same way Jesus is willing to do anything to save and redeem us. And when we do the same, we reflect, we model his character. When we show redeeming love and we sacrifice for others, we're reflecting Jesus and doing the same thing Boaz is here. Now, that type of love is against our human nature. We act more like that other redeemer. Look, I've got some concerns in this. I have some things I need to take care of. I don't think I can help this person. But when we sacrifice those interests to care for others, when we set aside our desires for someone else, then something incredible happens. God's grace, his mercy works in our lives in amazing ways. And we benefit too. Boaz put God's law into practice. He trusted the Lord and he was blessed for it. He was married to a virtuous, excellent wife And he had a family legacy greater than he could have ever imagined. It's always best to follow the Lord by showing redeeming love to others. And in this case, when that happens, it leads to a happy ending. A happy ending. Let me read verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women who lived in Bethlehem said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Verse 16, Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse laid him on her lap, became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Naomi, who lost everything, now is filled, has fullness with a grandson. So this is another scene. You almost, if it was a movie or a film TV show, a title card would would pop up nine months later after that, and here we are. As the scholar Ronald Berge says, the conclusion serves as a reversal 
of the introduction, showing how the Lord, through Ruth's love, restored Naomi's life. It's the reverse of the dark ending we had at the beginning. This affects all the characters. For Ruth, she goes from a foreigner to she calls herself a slave servant to a maid servant, a house servant, and now she is a wife. And the Lord gave her conception in answer to the people's prayer. They said that she would have children just like Leah and Rachel. And so she does. The book of Genesis talks about this. It uses the same language. In Genesis 29, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And then a chapter later, then God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. The same thing happens to Ruth. And this is somewhat incredible or would have seemed that way at the time, because if you remember, Ruth was married before, was married for 10 years and didn't have any children, but now she's married and is able to have a son. And this, in this book that I've tried to talk a lot about God as we've read it, this is only the second time in the book that God is said to act in this book, that God does something. And the other time he did it, it was using the same word, that word gave or a form of that word. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 6. It talks about Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. In chapter 1, God gives his people food. And now here in chapter 4, he gives this family a child. God's purposes are now clearly seen. We couldn't tell what God was doing at first, but now we can Ruth has found rest, and her house is being built up. That was the prayer they had, and the word son in Hebrew sounds like the Hebrew word for built up. God is building up their family by giving a son. And so the women of Bethlehem, they praise God for this new life from redemption. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. What Boaz did, this redemption is now realized in this son. The family line is continued. And it's interesting, the women here are almost seen more than the male elders of the town did because they're looking to God's purposes and seeing what God is doing with this marriage. They see that honor, renown, and fame will come to the son's name and then honor and praise to God. This son will be to Naomi a restorer of life, literally one who causes life, causes youth to return. We are truly at the reverse of chapter one. Remember back in chapter one, Naomi said, don't call me Naomi pleasant, call me Mara bitter because I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. But now she has a restorer of life, a nourisher in her old age. She has hope for the future, someone she can care for and someone who will someday care for her. She has joy in the present. She's a new grandma now. And verse 15 at the end has one of the most encouraging phrases for faithful women, an extremely encouraging verse for women at the very end of it. The women of the town say, your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Ruth is lifted up. She is praised for her committed devotion to Naomi and her family. Ruth has been more faithful than the perfect number of sons. This is incredible praise for an ancient document. 
not because it's right, but because of the way the world worked back then and sometimes works now. Sometimes men are valued more than women are. But here they say this one woman, this one faithful woman is better than any number of average men. And with that great praise, Naomi cares for her grandson. Like her own child, her empty hands now hold a baby. Obed is Boaz's and Ruth's child, but because Naomi takes so much care of her, the women of the neighborhood said, a son has been born to Naomi. Her family is secure. It's like she has a son again. And so here at the end of Ruth, our characters we've been following are exiting the stage in the reverse order they came in. At the beginning, we're introduced to Naomi, and then Ruth marries into the family, and then the two of them go and meet Boaz. Well, in this chapter, Boaz does some redemption. He steps back. Ruth is praised for her faithfulness. She steps back, and we're left with Naomi now holding a son, God's faithfulness to her. And the very last phrase of 17 is a very short genealogy that's then unpacked in the next verses. It just says, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David will be the real fulfillment of all these prayers and blessings. Yes, this is the very famous King David, David and Goliath, David who wrote all those Psalms, David the shepherd king. This David came from here. And this is what makes this happy ending unexpectedly great. We read it and we think, it looks like God's going to bring this couple together and they'll be happy and then Naomi and Ruth will be provided for. That's what we expect to happen. What surprises us is, oh, they're able to have a child. Wow, that's wonderful. But then we're shocked at the very end, to realize that their descendant is the famous King David. One of the most important characters in the entire Bible would not exist if this story did not happen. This story is that important. These three people living in the middle of nowhere in a tiny town in Israel are essential to the message, the story of the Bible happening. So this is this unexpectedly great happy ending. Now you hear this, though, and there's a couple of responses that we could have to it. Two popped in my mind. One, I hope the response that we have when we hear this is that we have joyful hope, joyful hope, because God brings happiness, he brings his blessing in his timing and in his way. Even when the world is broken and there's suffering and death, he still brings his happiness and blessing. He brought Ruth all the way from Moab so that Boaz could have a husband. Ruth left her family, but she gets a new one. Naomi lost her family, but gets a new family tree, gets grandkids. God gives us family too. He gives us family, especially if we know him, if we're a part of his family, the church. He brings us a family that we can enjoy knowing and connecting with in this time, and someday we'll experience it permanently in heaven, a time where no lockdowns or quarantines can separate us. The Lord provides also for us when we need it and provides what we need. God remakes what is spoiled by sin. Brokenness and the coronavirus do not stop his plans and his purposes. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, he put it this way, the fact that God is able to work on the small scale of these apparently insignificant lives encourages us to believe that he is also working out a larger master plan for the world. 
He brought about a famine and all these things to get this one couple to come to Bethlehem and come together to bring David into existence eventually. How is he working for our blessing in his lives? It's an encouragement that God has a purpose. He will complete his purpose. We can count on it. The Apostle Paul talked about this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. For our 2020 grads, it's like your long schooling process. All those classes and things, sometimes in the middle of it, you don't see what the purpose is. But that graduation does come. It's the same with God's purposes. In the middle of it, we might not understand and see what he's doing, but it does come. God has a purpose for your life, for my life, for the lives of everyone around us. And that means we can live in hope. So we should have that joyful response to this passage. But it's possible that we respond a different way. It's possible we look at this and we respond with bitterness, maybe some cynicism at it. Because maybe we don't see ourselves reflected in these characters. Maybe we say, well, I'd love to be married like Boaz and Ruth, but that's not where I am in life right now. Maybe we think, I would love to have children like Ruth did, but that's not where I am right now. Perhaps like this family, like Naomi lost her sons, maybe you've experienced the loss of a child, or perhaps some other frustration in life. And you see an ending like this, you're like, this doesn't seem to describe me. This doesn't sound like my life. I don't think that happens in the real world. I understand those feelings and very sympathetic to the loss and the hurt that we can experience in life. But I would cause us to remember or point us to what actually happened to the characters here. Remember, Naomi had a long period of bitterness. She had lost her husband and her sons. And it's not that the loss is completely gone. I'm sure she still feels it. Ruth had to make a difficult choice. She had to leave her family behind to follow God not knowing if marriage or children may ever come. She didn't think they would. And she still lost her family and never saw them again. This world is imperfect. We will have pain. But remember, if you look at this and you want to have a bitter, cynical reaction, I'm, I understand that. Sometimes I do when I look at the world. Remember, God loves to redeem broken people. And in our moment of loss and hurt, we might not see everything God's doing in that particular moment, because we have a limited perspective. When I say that, I'm not trying to minimize any pain or or suffering that you've experienced or are feeling. I'm trying to give you hope, hope in God's good purposes, because we will see them on one side of eternity or the other. And the reason we can have that confidence, the greatest cause for hope that we have, is because There's a few more verses, and the ending gives us a description of a future redeemer, a future redeemer. The last few verses, 18 through 22, says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Here we see the full context of this story come together. The Lord used this family, these people, to create the greatest family line of all time. King David would come from this, and if we 
know or have heard the rest of our Bibles, the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is also a descendant of King David. That means he's also a descendant of Boaz and Ruth. This book, the reason this book is here is to give us the family history of David. We were reading and think it's about God providing for this woman. It's about God providing for this family. Yes, that's a wonderful lesson we can take from it. But the reason the book was written was to give us a family history of David, to see God's hand in David's family's life. None of the characters in this book knew this. Yes, Boaz is technically the great-grandfather of David. I really doubt that they met or that Ruth met David. None of them knew who this descendant would be, but yet that was what God was doing in this story. One scholar, Daniel Block, said, this book, this genealogy, demonstrate that even in the dark days of the judges, the chosen line is preserved. But it's not by heroic exploits, by deliverers or kings. No, it's by the good hand of God as he rewards or blesses his good people with a fullness beyond all imagination. It's a reminder to us, we don't need a person, a great hero, a politician or someone to save us. We need a great God. He works through ordinary people. Like Ruth, one of three foreign women in the genealogy of Jesus, God works through people like this to accomplish his purpose. Again, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, God's purposes crisscross and zigzag. They cross-fertilize one believer's life with that of an unbeliever or one believer's experience with another believer. God, he is always doing several things in several lives. And perhaps in the moment we can't tell, we can't figure out what it is. God, why did I have that random conversation with that person? You may never know, but maybe God used that conversation to inspire that person to do something else for someone else who did something to a third person that did something incredible with it. And you don't know how God is using that. I love that crisscross, zigzag, cross-fertilize what we do with someone else. God's great enough to be doing multiple things at one time. He's not limited by boundaries like culture or race. He brings this Moabite woman, an enemy of God's people, into his people to work in ways greater than we could ever understand. And what this means is that all of the book of Ruth and all of the Old Testament is really pointing to a future redeemer, a future savior. At the beginning of the service, we read Job 19.25. Again, another Old Testament book. Job says, I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. He had hope in a future redeemer, a future savior. The prophet Isaiah had this hope as well. He says, in that day, the root, a descendant of Jesse, we read his name, uh, Jesse, he was Obed's son, and so David's father, but a descendant of Jesse will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall all the nations, all peoples will inquire. His resting place shall be glorious. All the themes of scripture we see flowing through and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Eternal life, new birth, reconciliation, being restored to God, a new earth, a new hope. These all come through Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22 says this, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. In this book, we are looking ahead to this future redeemer, this bright morning star. 
So if you leave our study, our time in the book of Ruth, with nothing else, know that it points to a future Redeemer. Because we were trapped, like Naomi, like Ruth. We were stuck, not in poverty like them, but we were stuck in sin and separation from God. Jesus redeemed us. He paid for our sin. By dying on the cross, living for us, dying on the cross, rising from the grave, He has paid for a, a way for us to know God. And understanding this is crucial to everyone who is listening to me. Nothing is more practical than the state of your soul. If you're not a Christian, your eternal future depends on you grasping this, that you cannot save yourself. That's the point of this. None of these characters did something to save themselves. God had to bless and work in their lives. And then even through that, he brought about a great king to rule his people and then a great savior and king for everyone who would know him. I encourage you, if you do not know him, to come to know Jesus Christ. You know him by turning away from your sin and by believing, calling out to him, trusting him for salvation. That's something that I can talk to you about or anyone else can talk about, but it's really you just need to turn from sin and believe on him, trust in him. Ask me, ask someone questions about that if you have them, but come to know, have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But this redemption is not just something that people who don't know Jesus need to know about. Christians need to know it too, because we often forget that we've been redeemed, purchased, saved by Jesus. We forget God's love and grace. I was reminded of this because just the other week, not this past Thursday, Friday, but the week before, there were two prominent people died. And one right after another was interesting. One is a civil rights activist, John Lewis, who was in Congress, but the day after him, a theologian named J.I. Packer passed away. He was a very famous Christian author. And in his most famous book, Knowing God, he wrote this. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, or if you want to judge that, then find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, well, then it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If our faith is just about something that happened to us that means our future is good and we're good to go, then we don't really understand what's happening here. Jesus has bought us. He has brought us into a relationship with him. That should change everything else in our life. And if we remember that, that can give us hope in any moment, that can give us guidance for how we are to live, that can give us joy when things seem dark. We are God's child because Jesus has redeemed us. Every trial and temptation that we face, we don't face alone, we face as a redeemed child. God loves you as his child and you can rely on him. So the message of the book of Ruth is that we live in a broken world, but God redeems through Jesus Christ. And that means that he alone is worthy.